But with the start of a new year comes hope for better things, at least for, uh, I think, the majority of people. It's like starting fresh. That year is over with. we got a new one now. So uh, there's hope. And the ups and downs of the the previous year are laid to rest, and and, uh, hopefully new goals are set. Uh, But you know, it's, it's very good. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's very good to set goals, isn't it? Wouldn't you agree with that? To have goals and to have tiered goals. Have some ultimate goals. Have some goals uh, time-wise that you could reach within a certain time and, and greater goals. That way, uh, you're, you're always encouraged to push you know, for uh, those goals. And it's good to review these goals and set new ones as long as we strive to meet them. Otherwise, they're just words on a page or thoughts in our mind. Isn't that true? Jesus said in Luke 13.24, He said, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Jesus is telling us to strive. Isn't that interesting? In Christendom today, they tell you, Oh, just believe. But Jesus is saying to strive. Who are you going to listen to? Jesus is saying here to us is that we must exert ourselves by faith. We have to exercise our faith, not just have a mental assent, not just have the knowledge in our head. We must exert ourselves or strive if we are to reach our goals. Now the ultimate goal that is inherent in the Gospel. When you think about the Gospel and you think about goals, think about this. There is an ultimate goal that is inherent in the Gospel, which is especially brought to light in the present truth for this time. And that is, that ultimate goal is of reproducing the character of Jesus in each of His people. That is the ultimate goal that is inherent in the Gospel. This has been the underlying, uh, if not outright, theme of the Advent movement since 1844. And like I said, present truth uh, for the time of the end, or our time, the time that we're living in. Now the foundation of this present truth is found in Daniel 8.14. This is the foundation of our faith today. Our present truth faith. Daniel 8.14, we're as Adventists, should be extremely familiar with this. Daniel 8.14 says, And He said unto me, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. This is a cleansing of the sanctuary by removal of sin. By the removal of our sin. Peter gives us a bit of insight into this in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Don't be shy. You can take your Bibles and you can follow along. Don't trust my words. Test to see what I'm saying is is true. Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. So you think about this ultimate goal that is inherent in the Gospel, the reproducing of the character of Jesus and His people, and the foundation here of our faith in Daniel 8.14, the cleansing of the sanctuary, the removal of sin, and hopefully some things start to click in your mind. Let's look at what Peter says. He gives us a little insight here in Acts 3.19. Peter says, Repent ye therefore, be converted, that your sins may be... What's he say there? Blotted out, that your sins may be blotted out. What do you think it means to blot something out? Could be removed, X'd out, erased, right? He says that your sins may be blotted out. Repent and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Like white out, blotted out. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. This is what Jesus, 
friends, has been doing in heaven since 1844, the year 1844. He is working at blotting out our sins, cleansing the sanctuary as we strive to reach the goal of perfectly revealing His character in our own life. In other words, completely overcoming sin. Thus, no more sins are entering into the sanctuary. You see? And when this is accomplished, probation will close and Jesus will return. We're familiar with this. I've shared it with you uh, many times before. Uh, It's from the book Christ's Object Lessons, page 69. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in His people, then He will come to claim them as His own. What many people don't realize, and sadly many Adventists as well, uh, is that this goal of perfecting our character after that of Jesus qualify us for heavenly citizenship, is how I will put it, uh, did not begin in 1844 when He entered the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary. It has been the goal of God to restore His image in man since the fall of man. That has been the ultimate goal. That's why I say it is the ultimate goal that is inherent in the Gospel, in the good news. That you can be changed. You know, you got to want to be changed. And we'll get into this in just a few moments. But you got to see a need to be changed. And this is one of the things that Jesus lays out. When Jesus came the first time while preaching on a mountaintop at the beginning of His ministry, He actually did explain uh, the goal of how to be a restored citizen of the kingdom of God. We find it in Matthew. It can also be found in, in Luke and such, but uh, we're going we're gonna to concentrate in Matthew. Matthew chapters 5-7 to seven here. Many people read... The Sermon on the Mount. Are you guys familiar with the Sermon on the Mount? Have you heard that uh, characterized that way before? Christ's sermon there on the mountaintop? Many people, they, they read this Sermon on the Mount and they don't see this underlying theme of character perfection, which is the goal of citizenship into the kingdom of God. They are surface reading and they need to dig a bit deeper and hopefully uh, by God's grace we will be digging deeper today. And Jesus say, uh, to search as for hidden treasure, we have to dig, friends. In chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus lays out the following. If you look through just this chapter, first, how to become a citizen of the kingdom. You read that verses 3 through 12, and that's what I'm going to concentrate on here in our study this morning. How to become a citizen of the kingdom of, of God. The second thing, citizens of the kingdom being living representatives of its principles, the principles of the kingdom. That's verses 13 to 16. The third thing, the standard of conduct in the kingdom of heaven, verses 17 to 47. And then the fourth thing, transformation, see, of our character. Perfection of our character as the goal of citizenship, which was our Scripture reading for today. Uh, Like I said, I want to concentrate specifically on the first 12 verses of this chapter, how to become a citizen of heaven. Jesus, you see, beloved, is revealing in these verses uh, quite a lot Uh, to us about the goal of character perfection if we'll listen, if we'll dig. We search it out. And depending on the Holy Spirit, our eyes shall be opened. You know, to appreciate fully the significance of the Sermon on the Mount, it's important for us to understand not only each principle as it is individually set forth, Uh, by Jesus, but also the relationship of each principle to the whole message. Or one of the biblical uh, uh, principles of study is to look also at the greater context of what is being taught and shared. The sermon is bound together, you see, friends, by an overall unity 
which is not apparent to a casual reader. People uh, look at it sometimes and they break it up so much and they don't see the greater context of what Jesus was trying to teach. So let's begin in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, And seeing the multitudes, He went up into a mountain, and when He was set, His disciples came unto Him. Means when He sat down. You know, back then, when preaching, it's, it's not like it is so much today. Many times it was the custom then uh, that when you taught and you, you preached, you did it while sitting down. But you don't see that today much at all, do you? I'm standing and, and standing behind a pulpit and preaching. But at that time, it was a, a custom to, to sit when, it, when you taught. And, and uh, the people would sit with you. Now it says His disciples came unto Him. This includes, of course, the twelve disciples. They had uh, been appointed and ordained. Uh, they'd been ordained earlier that morning. Uh, the disciples formed an inner circle around Jesus. And so naturally they took their place around Him. But there were, in addition, many others who followed Jesus who were also known as disciples, and they were there. However, the, the audience at this time was composed primarily of, of peasants and fishermen. You know, the common everyday people. And there's a lesson for us as well. We're to be fishers of men, to go to all people. And of course, you'll find that there were spies that were present as well. There were spies that came out to see John the Baptist when he was proclaiming, you know, a voice uh, proclaiming in the wilderness that Jesus was coming. And. Satan still has his spies today. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does he mean by that? Blessed. You know, that's also a, a word that can be translated as happy. Don't you find it rather interesting the way that Jesus puts things sometimes? Happy are the poor in spirit. Sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? He says, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit. Jesus addresses, you see, the desire of every human heart right at the beginning of His sermon, and that's to be happy. Happiness. Don't we all want to be happy? This desire, friends, was implanted in humanity by the Creator Himself and was originally meant to lead humanity, lead men, lead us to to find true happiness through cooperation with God. He's the one who created us. He's the one who defines happiness. We're not the ones who define happiness. We think we are. You see, sin is involved when we attempt to achieve happiness as an end in itself. We try to take a shortcut, you see. We bypass obedience to the commandments of God. Sin never truly makes one happy for it causes destruction. It ultimately leads to death, eternal death. Thus at the commencement of His ministry, Christ proclaims that the main objective, you see, of the kingdom is to restore the lost happiness of Eden to the hearts of men and women. To bring them back into His image. To reproduce His character qualify them to be a citizen of heaven. To, to be a citizen of the new earth. A citizen of the kingdom of God. And those who choose to enter in by the straight gate, as Jesus says, in the narrow way, will find true happiness. For the straight and narrow way leads to Christ. 
and a character of love like His. Happiness never stands alone either. Along with happiness comes peace and joy. Now, I'm speaking about true happiness. Not a fulfilling of a carnal lust. That's That may be a happy feeling for a season. But along with that carnal lust and giving into it comes guilt. Not peace and not joy. True happiness has peace and joy that comes with it. And those who willingly obey God from a heart of love will find an inward peace and joy. True and lasting. That's a key. A lasting satisfaction for their heart and their soul. No matter the ups and downs of feelings, you see, and passions and emotions. As Paul says in Philippians 4 and verse 7, he says, "...in the peace of God which passeth all understanding." We just can't understand it sometimes. She'll keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Not in what you do, but in what He does, you see. For that peace originates with Him. That happiness originates with Him. This kind of peace the world can't give, you see. For it's found only in Christ. And happiness comes only to the hearts of those who are at peace with God and at peace with uh, their fellow human beings. Walking according to the two great commandments of the law. Jesus summarized that. How did He summarize the, the commandments? And He say we are to love God su- supremely and to love our neighbor as we would love ourselves. Jesus said, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit. The, the word for poor in the Greek indicates a deep poverty. A deep poverty. I remember listening to stories from my mother. Um, she talked about when she was a young girl. And they lived, uh, when she was very young, they lived in a home that had a dirt floor. I can't imagine. I've never lived in a home with a dirt floor. A dirty floor, yeah, but not a dirt floor. And thus you get the the expression dirt poor. And that's a a physical description of poor. But uh, Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's talking about a deep poverty. He's speaking about those who are in dire spiritual poverty. They keenly sense their need of the valuable riches of grace that the kingdom of God has to offer. They are in dire need for the Spirit of God to help them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We need the help of God. We are poor in spirit. None but the poor in spirit will ever enter the kingdom. You realize that? Others feel no need of heaven's riches and they decline the blessings that God has. Sadly, this is a description of God's people today. We read in Revelation chapter 3. Jesus describes people. Revelation 3.17 Because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. We have to feel the need, you see. We have to be poor in spirit. Jesus said and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And when he says poor there, he's not talking about spiritually poor. Well, he could. I, I, I think it could mean both. There's no room in the kingdom of heaven for the proud, the self-satisfied, and the self-righteous. Christ offers the poor in heart to exchange their poverty for the help of His grace. What they need. See, They see that they have a need. They're poor in spirit.
from the book The Story of Jesus, page 60. Let me share this with you. The poor in spirit are those who know their own sinfulness and need. They know that of themselves they can do no good thing. They desire help from God, and to them His blessing is given. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Isn't that what Jesus said? Why are they blessed? They see that they have a need that only God can fill. And they desire it. Jesus said, For theirs is the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. The Jews believed that the kingdom of heaven was a kingdom based on force. That God was going to come down and He was going to, through the Messiah, compel the nations of the earth to to submit to Israel. Rome would be defeated. But the kingdom Christ came to establish was one that begins within our hearts. It permeates our lives and overflows in the hearts and lives of others. The compelling power of God's love. It begins in here. Are you poor in spirit? If you don't see the need, if you don't recognize the need to have Jesus, the need of help that only God can provide, You're not poor in spirit. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't strive to reach you. He will allow you to go about your own choices and at some time you'll bring yourself into a position where you may be open to hear His voice. And many times those aren't pleasant positions to be in. Physically speaking and and emotionally and you know. let's look at the next one Matthew chapter 5 verse 4 so we have blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom here he, he goes on from there he says blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted now, on a cursory reading, you say, well, yes, you know, someone's uh, been devastated by the loss of a, a spouse or something like that, and they're going to mourn, and, and you're going to comfort them. Yeah, that's, that's the cursory reading. But what is it that Jesus is really speaking of here? Let's dig a little bit deeper. You know, the Greek word for mourn is pentheo. Pentheo generally denotes an intense mourning. Intense weeping and mourning. Crying. That's in contrast to a more general word meaning to grieve. The profound spiritual poverty of the poor in spirit. Their deep sense of spiritual need leads them to mourn, you see, for the imperfection they see in their own lives. Jesus is referring to those who, in poverty of spirit, long to reach the ultimate goal of being like Him. And they see where they come up short. They mourn over their shortcomings and their sins. And Jesus says, they shall be comforted. But they're mourning. And we see this in some situations throughout the Bible. I thought of Isaiah. Isaiah 6 and verse 5. Where Isaiah says, Then said I, Woe is me! He was mourning. Woe is me! For I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. 
For mine eyes have seen the King, Lord of hosts. And as we draw closer to Christ and we learn of Him, we see how dirty we really are. We see how poor in spirit we truly are and the need that we we have. And we mourn. Paul said in Romans 7 and verse 24, he said, O wretched man that I am. Wretched. Do we say that about ourselves? Or do we 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 think oh, I'm not that bad. I'm okay. Yeah. Exactly. I'm not as bad as so and so. Isaiah said, Woe is me. Paul said, O wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Blessed are they that mourn. The Desire of Ages, page 300. Real sorrow for sin is the result of the working of the Holy Spirit. We don't see that ourselves. Because naturally, we have an enmity with God and we enjoy the pleasure of sin. Sorrow comes from the Holy Spirit working on our heart. She says, The Spirit reveals the ingratitude of the heart that has slighted and grieved the Savior and brings us in contrition to the foot of the cross. By every sin, Jesus is wounded afresh. Let that sink into your mind. By every sin, Jesus is wounded afresh afresh. Not just the nails going through His hands, but He was scourged. He was whipped. He was punched. He had His beard ripped out. Grab your goatee, Jared, and rip hunks out of your chin. Man, he's heartbroken. The Spirit reveals the ingratitude of the heart that has slighted and grieved the Savior and brings us in contrition to the foot of the cross. By every sin we commit, friends, Jesus is wounded afresh. And as we look upon Him whom we have pierced, whom we have pierced, not those Romans back there standing with the spear, but us. We mourn for the sins that have brought anguish upon Him. Such mourning will lead to the renunciation of sin. We have to have a right view of things. Satan takes sin and he paints a beautiful picture of what it is. And we remove that picture and we see Jesus tortured and suffering. Shouldn't that open our eyes a bit? But you know, Jesus said even though we mourn, He said we shall be comforted. I like that. Sometimes in life, every one of you will go through a situation where you will mourn at the loss of something. Usually the death of a close loved one. And that's hard to find comfort in anything. It's time. Time helps. But Jesus is there and He does comfort. In a spiritual sense, as God meets the sense of the spiritual need, the poor in spirit, as He meets that sense of spiritual need with the riches or the help 
uh, of His grace, the grace of heaven, so He meets the mourning over sin with the comfort of sins forgiven. We will mourn over our shortcomings. We will mourn over our sins because of what it causes. But Jesus comforts us in that He, if allowed, will remove that guilt and bring that peace. See? Happy are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see, except there be first a sense of need, there will not be mourning for what we lack. In this case, a righteous character. Mourning for sin is thus the second requirement made of those who present themselves as candidates for the kingdom of God. And then follows naturally in sequence after the first step towards character perfection, which is being poor in spirit, needing God's help. Let's go to verse 5. Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. The Greek word for meek can be translated as mild, gentle, or meek as it's translated here. I like gentle. It gives me a little different perspective on it. Blessed are the gentle. Isn't that interesting? Happy are the gentle. Happy are the mild. Webster's Dictionary defines meek as, and this is the 1828 edition, he defines meek as mild of temper, not easily provoked. Well, we could say that about Jesus, couldn't we? He wasn't easily provoked, was he? Not easily provoked. Patient under injuries. You're being accosted, injured in some way. But you're patient. I think of, remember, we, we've been studying Paul and Silas thrown in prison. They've been scourged. And everything. Then they were patient under those injuries that were inflicted upon them. It says, not vain or haughty or resentful, forbearing, submissive. These are good descriptions. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus, here he's, he's giving an invitation to all. And He says, Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. You're loaded down with the cares of life, with guilt. You're unhappy. He says, I'll give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And notice what he says. He says, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And what he's saying here, he's saying he is gentle. He is mild and he is humble in heart. That's what lowly means. Humble. And he says, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Not just a physical rest. spiritual rest. And Jesus says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we team up with Him, we're changed, you see. Being gentle and humble, Christ, really, He's a sympathetic teacher. And if we learn of Him, we will be gentle and humble like Him. You see, meekness... Meekness is the attitude of the heart and the mind and life that prepares, it actually prepares us to be made holy, to be sanctified. Meekness towards God means that we accept His will and His dealing with us as good. We realize that He has our best interest at heart. It means that we submit to Him in all things without hesitation. A meek man has self under complete control no matter what comes his way. The Bible says that Moses was meek. From the Desire of Ages, pages 301. Page 301. Bless you. The difficulties we have to encounter may be very much lessened by that meekness which hides itself in Christ. If we possess the humility of our Master, we shall rise above the slights, the rebuffs, the annoyances, 
to which we are daily exposed, and they will cease to cast a gloom over the Spirit. I pray that I may have meekness or meekness. You catch that? If we possess the humility of our Master, we shall rise above the slights, the rebuffs, the annoyances to which we are daily exposed. And they will cease to cast a gloom over the Spirit. The highest evidence of nobility in a Christian is self-control. I think of Jesus when He was on trial. The things they did to Him throughout His trial, the beatings that He took, being nailed to a cross, and He was under complete self-control. He who under abuse or cruelty fails to maintain a calm and trustful spirit, notice this, robs God of His right to reveal in Him His own perfection of character. Wow. We become thieves. Interesting way to see it, isn't it? Lowliness of heart, she says, is the strength that gives victory to the followers of Christ. It is the token of their connection with the courts above. Psalms 37.11 says, The meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Jesus was quoting Psalms 37, verse 11. He said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth, Psalms 37 says. So, the poor in spirit are to receive the riches of the kingdom of heaven. They're to receive help from God. They see that they have that need and they receive it. Those who mourn shall receive the comfort of pardon and sanctification. You see? The meek will inherit the earth. Now, it's certain that the meek don't inherit the earth uh, right now. It's those who are proud that have control of the earth, isn't it? Nevertheless, in due time, the kingdoms of this world will be given to the saints, to those who have learned the grace of meekness and humility from Jesus. Eventually, those who humble themselves, those who learn meekness, will be exalted, Jesus said. You can read that in Matthew 23. Hopefully, you're beginning to see how Jesus is laying out the steps of character perfection here in the Beatitudes. You know, becoming and revealing oneself to be a citizen of His kingdom. Let's look at verse 6. Matthew 5 and verse 6. I'm going to spend some time on this one. I'll probably end out the lesson today on this one. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Jesus was speaking. This is very interesting. He's saying... Those who do th- hunger and thirst. You know, when you when you read the Gospels, and any time Jesus was teaching and He was out among the people, He used those things around uh, the, the, the local environment, those things around their, their economy to teach lessons, didn't He? Here He is in a place um, that didn't get a lot of rainfall. When you think of the Middle East, do you think of an oasis? Do you think of beaches? You think of dry and humid, don't you? So Jesus, He was speaking to a people who knew what it meant to be thirsty. They lived in a country where the average rainfall was about 25 inches a year. No doubt many in the audience had experienced thirst, you know, the pangs of thirst. But Jesus spoke a of the hunger and thirst of the soul, didn't He? Isn't that what He was speaking about? Psalms 42 and verse 1 says, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after Thee, O God. Speaking spiritually. He's saying, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Only those who long for righteousness with the eagerness of someone who's starving for lack of food or who is famishing for want of water is going to find it. It says in Jeremiah 29, verse 13, And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all 
your heart. You know, friends, no earthly source can satisfy the hunger and thirst of the soul, whether it is material riches, um, different philosophies. You know, my brother, uh, when he was in prison, he read all different books about different religions, you know, Buddhism and Hinduism, and he thought he would find happiness somehow in all these different philosophies of life. Maybe the satisfaction of physical appetites. And that's not just speaking about what you eat or drink. Your passions. Or honor, maybe. People esteem you. Or power. You have control. You cannot fill your life with such things and be completely satisfied in your heart. Something will be missing. True happiness will be missing. Joy and peace will be missing. You know, after experimenting with all these things, Solomon concluded that all is vanity. That's what he says. All of this, it's vanity. It's vain. None brought the satisfaction and happiness for which every human heart longs for. And so his conclusion was that cooperation with the Creator provided the only enduring satisfaction to a person's heart. This is what we read in, in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. Which is very familiar. He said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Have a reverent awe for God and keep His commandments for this is the whole duty of man. We were created to be happy, He's saying. And the only way for us to be happy is to fear God and keep His commandments, to, to obey Him. That is the greatest joy that a human being can have. It's the whole duty of man. It's why man was created. To live a happy life. To have peace with God. To have joy. A person who has a longing in their heart for righteousness... has the evidence that Christ has already begun His work there. They were poor in spirit and they received riches of grace. They received help from God. They mourned because of their sins and they received comfort. They received that peace through forgiveness. And with this comfort from the Spirit comes meekness of their, to their soul. They become mild and gentle. Now, they're hungering and they're thirsting for righteousness to do what is right. Now among the Greeks, righteousness consisted in conformity to accepted customs. To the Jews, it was essentially a matter of conformity to the requirements of the law as interpreted by their tradition. But for Christ's followers, righteousness has a broader meaning. Instead of going about to establish our own righteousness, we as Christians are called to submit ourselves unto the righteousness of God, Paul says in Romans 10. We are to submit to the righteousness of God. Now, the righteousness of Christ is both imputed and imparted. Have you ever heard those words before? Imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness. Well, boy, it's getting really kind of difficult now. We're using those big words. What do they, they mean? What does imputed mean? Well, according to Webster's Dictionary, imputed means charged to the account of, attributed, ascribed. In other words, you're given credit for. You see? Imputed righteousness brings justification. It's pardon for sins. When we ask forgiveness, we go to God and we give Him our life. Pay attention to me here. When we give God our life, we give Him our will, we, we accept Jesus as our Lord and our Master and our Savior, there's a change. All our past sins are covered by the righteousness of Jesus. In other words, we're given credit. 
When God looks at us, He sees the righteousness of Jesus for all our past mistakes. We're given credit for what Christ has done. So we can be forgiven, see. It brings, that's another word, justification. We're justified through the righteousness of Jesus. From the Faith I Live By, page 107. The grace of Christ is freely to justify the sinner without merit or claim on his part. We, we couldn't claim to be just. I suppose we could claim to be, but there's no way we could be just. Justification is a full, complete pardon of sin. The moment a sinner accepts Christ by faith, that moment he is pardoned. The righteousness of Christ. What is righteousness again? Big word, what's it mean? Huh? What's it mean? Right doing. Doing the right thing in God's eyes. Through the Scriptures. Doing what is right. The righteousness, the right doing of Christ is imputed to the repentant sinner. The one who has accepted Christ by faith. He's pardoned. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to him. and he is, So he's given credit for that. And he is no more to doubt God's forgiving grace. We go from that point forward not doubting that God has forgiven us. But what happens to us usually? Well, the devil's there to bring up our past sins, isn't he? Oh, he didn't really forgive you. We are not to listen to the devil. We're to listen to God. And God says, I've forgiven you. Do you believe it? Here's another one from the Desire of Ages, page 667. In Christ's name, His followers are to stand before God. Get that? In Christ's name, His followers are to stand before God. Through the value of the sacrifice made for them, they are of value in the Lord's sight. Because of the imputed righteousness. Again, what does imputed mean? We're given account for, we're given credit for the good things that Jesus has done because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, they are accounted precious. For Christ's sake, the Lord pardons those that fear Him. He does not see in them the vileness of the sinner. He recognizes in them the likeness of His Son in whom they believe. So, do you understand this? When you give yourself to Christ and He becomes your Savior and your Master, and you ask for forgiveness of sins, He pardons you. You're given credit. Your sins are removed. Look at it as a book. Your sins are erased and all the right things that Jesus did is written in their place. You see what I'm saying? You may have stolen. That's erased. What's written in there? Jesus never stole. You understand? You may have killed someone. That's erased. Jesus, His righteousness is written in there. He's ne- he never murdered. You understand what I'm saying? You're given credit for it. And you're forgiven. That's imputed. Given credit for His right doing. But the justified soul, the person who's been justified, who's been pardoned, grows in grace as justification and sanctification come. They come to the sinner the moment that they accept Christ by faith. So you're not just being justified in the eyes of God when He looks at your record. He doesn't see your record anymore. He sees the record of Jesus because you're given credit for it. it. It doesn't end there. Power is given to you to become holy. You're being changed, you see. Through the power of the indwelling Spirit, you conform your life to the requirements of God's commandments. You begin to live the life of Jesus. That is what is called imparted righteousness. So imputed means you're given credit for it. Imparted, what does that mean? Well, Webster's defines imparted as communicated, granted, conferred. I like conferred. Conferred means given, imparted, or bestowed. 
So in other words, you come to Jesus, right? You confess your sins. You ask forgiveness. You give Him your will. You ask Him to be the not only your Savior, but your Lord as well. Immediately, your sins are erased and all the righteous works of Jesus is written in. You are given credit for it. Then, God begins to give you grace. He begins to give you spiritual strength, give you things to... He imparts to you grace to do what Jesus did. Does it make sense? I'm trying to make it as simple as I can. And still stay within the definition. Notice this from Signs of the Times, June 10th, 1889. The strength of Jesus will be imparted to every soul who strives lawfully for the mastery. All may be overcomers. Okay, very short, very simple. The strength of Jesus will be imparted. It's going to be bestowed upon you. You see? When you need strength to overcome, you go to the Lord, He imparts strength to you to overcome. Here's another one. Signs of the Times, April 2nd, 1896. Through Jesus Christ, moral power may be imparted to man, and when it is combined with human effort, we may reach the divine standard. And what is the divine standard? We're brought back into the image of our Creator. We have a character like that of Christ reproduced in us. Here's another one. Review and Herald, June 4th, 1895. The righteousness by which we are justified is imputed, we're given credit for His righteousness, His works, His righteous things. The righteousness by which we are sanctified, what's sanctified mean? Set apart. Set apart as holy. To be made holy. So she says, the righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. Notice what she says here. This is very important. She says, the first is our title to heaven. We are given credit. His righteousness is imputed for our past. So we become the children of God. It's our title to heaven. We are Christ's. You see? And then she says, the second which is imparted to us, the righteousness, is our fitness for heaven. So it's like the first one gives us the entry card to get into heaven. The second one shows that we have a righteousness. We have a, a character that is fit to live there. We're not thieves and murderers and liars and such. Here's one more. Manuscript 161, page 1. This is from from 1898. We must all learn that we must overcome as Christ overcame in our behalf. All pride is sin and must be expelled from the soul. Christ came to cut us loose from the originator of sin. He came to give us a mastery over the power of the destroyer and to save us from the sting of the serpent. Through His imparted righteousness, He gives us the power and such, right? Through His imparted strength, His righteousness, His right doing, He would place all human beings where they will be on vantage ground. He came to this earth and lived the law of God that man might stand in his God-given manhood, having complete mastery over his natural inclination to self-indulgence and to selfish ideas and principles which tarnish the soul. The physician of soul and body, he will give wisdom and complete victory over warring lusts. He will provide every facility that man may perfect a completeness of character in every respect. Amen and amen. That needs to be memorized by every follower of Christ. You see, friends, this is what this is what Jesus has in mind when He encourages us to be perfect as our Father in Heaven is perfect. Paul says in Romans 8, 
verses 3 to 5. He says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, just like us, and for sin, that means for a sacrifice, condemned sin in the flesh. He overcame all temptations. He never sinned. And then Paul goes on, he says, Jesus did that, verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. That we will be able to keep the law like Jesus did. Who walk not after the flesh, not after our carnal lusts and passions, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. You know, there's a lot more to it, isn't there? When Jesus says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, <laughs> they shall be filled. Notice this as I close up our study. Review and Herald, February 21st, 1888. The work of progress is not left wholly dependent on our weak human efforts. Because we would never be able to do it. She says, it's not dependent, wholly dependent. It means entirely dependent. It means we do have to make an effort. The work of, progre- the work of progress is not left wholly dependent on our weak human efforts. But as we endeavor to walk in the footsteps of the Redeemer, divine strength will be imparted that the righteousness of the law may be fulfilled in us. In other words, we'll keep the law. Help has been laid upon one who is mighty to save. And as we strive to add these virtues, He will multiply grace according to our need from His own divine sufficiency. So as we grow as Christians and the Lord is blotting out our sins, you see, He's up there revealing our sins to us. We maybe have been a Christian for 50 years and the Lord finally brings a sin to us that we didn't know we were committing. And He brings it to us. And then we have a choice. Are we going to keep committing that sin or are we going to repent of it? And so then when we repent of it and we ask for grace, His grace is given to us. It's imparted to us. Divine strength is given to us according to our need from His own divine sufficiency, He says, and we can overcome. Jesus said that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled. Will be filled. Are you thirsting and hungering after the righteousness of Christ? Friends, these are questions that we each need to answer. We've looked at four of the eight qualifications for heavenly citizenship and the only cost to you, to me, the only cost is a complete willingness to become one. To become a citizen of the kingdom of God. We'll look at the remaining qualifications next time we're together. I'll close with these words from the Apostle Paul. Philippians 1, verses 9-11. to And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You so very, very much for Jesus. We come to learn more and more that He is everything to us. And we pray, Lord, that You will forgive us. We've caused so much pain in Your heart. We humbly ask, Lord, for the Spirit to be alive in our hearts. Help us to recognize our spiritual need. 
that we are poor in spirit. Help us, Lord, to mourn, to mourn over our sins and our our weaknesses. We pray that you will comfort us. Help us to be meek, Lord, to be gentle like our Savior. Help us to learn the right things to do. Fill us with the righteousness of Jesus that we may treat others as you treat us. We thank you oh so much for for our Lord and our Savior. And as we go from this place, may we see these things in in the light that He wishes us to know and share it with others. Convert us afresh. This day, we pray in Jesus' name, who is so worthy.